Good morning, church. Please turn in our Bibles uh, to Genesis 34. Genesis 34, that's what we'll be today. And as you are turning, let me just help us with our review where we've been so far. Jacob has now returned and has located himself in the promised land. He has wrestled to get to this point, right? Wrestling with, with leaving Laban, which he did. Wrestling with meeting Esau, which he did. Jacob wrestled even with God himself. But God has preserved Jacob, and he's kept Jacob, just like he said that he would. And uh, I am of the persuasion that Jacob has been justified by faith not too long ago in our narrative. Just back to Genesis 32. But does that make Jacob perfect? Is Jacob still growing? Church, are you still growing? <laughs> right? Uh, do, do you still battle sin? Can you still fall prey to temptation? I would assume so. Because that battle won't be done until glory or until Jesus comes back. And, and there will be moments, there will be days uh, where we win and lose you know, that battle, uh, a battle per se. But, but we must never forget that the war with sin has been won through Christ. The Bible says that we are more than overcomers through him. And, and so I want you to keep that in mind when we look at Jacob in this chapter today. And I would like to give you a challenge as well before we read our text, all 31 verses of our text. It's the same challenge that I faced all week. And if you're aware of this text, it seems on the surface to be a passage of Scripture that comes kind of out of the blue, comes out of nowhere. Some commentators have even said, and I quote, this passage disrupts the flowing narrative that's in Genesis. It'd be like, you know, if I were telling you about my vacation a few weeks ago and telling you that I went to Ash Cave, an old man's cave, or is it Dead Man's Cave? It's one of those caves. And I went to, I went to see all the caves in the Hocking Hills and all the nature. We stayed in this cabin. And, 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 and then in Indiana, I caught this like mediocre-sized bass, you know? That's kind of how some people see this passage of Scripture. It's like, why is it here? Jacob wrestled with God after leaving Laban. He meets Esau where we expect, you know, a war to break out, but it doesn't. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about this, this horrifying event that takes place to a young girl named Dinah. But, but I, I want to remind us this morning about the Bible and what it claims for itself. Psalm 19 says that the, that the Scriptures are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and more valuable than gold. Moses isn't just uh, who, who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not just some old man, right, uh, it, it, just writing these random stories that come into his mind. This text was written and placed purposefully and perfectly by the inspired words of the Holy Spirit. And my challenge to you this morning, before we read this text, is to answer the question, why? If it's been per placed here perfectly and purposefully, why is this text here? What is the main point that God is wishing to exp express through this text? And so with that, let's read our passage of Scripture this morning. Genesis 34, verses 1 to 31, which says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. 
And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke uh, with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to, to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to, his, uh, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I, I will give. Ask me for as, as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young women, woman to be my wife. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said, to him, they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamor and, and, and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was uh, in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed." both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us come to your word with ears ready to hear and eyes wanting to behold the wondrous things from your word. 
Lord, we know that the Spirit has the power to change our hearts through studying Genesis 34, and so we pray that this would take place in our hearts this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This passage of Scripture really reminds me of the news nowadays. Now, I couldn't think of anything else to compare it to. It's pretty much impossible to turn on the news today and find anything encouraging or uplifting in today's world. There's so much tragedy, and frankly, a breaking news headline just attracts more viewers. Murder, gunfights, drugs, plagues, and and, and whatever else you want to add on. The events of Genesis 34 could fit in with the horrible, tragic events that we see on TV every day. It was a thousand years ago, but same fallen world that we live in today, right? In this passage of Scripture, Genesis 34, it's dark, but it's real life. For some of us today, it will be immensely even uh, um, uncomfortable. It really puts the nature of the world and and, and the nature of our heart on on full display. And I want to give you a fair warning today. Out of all 31 verses, there's not one good thing that happens in this, in this chapter that I can think of. You, know, you think about all the horrible moving parts. You have compromise, rape, deceit, murder, fear. I'd submit to you bad parenting. And yet, let me tell you, you need to hear this message today. And I, I needed to study this text this week. Even those of you that came into to church today already feeling uh, depressed, and you're hearing me intro this passage this morning and you're considering leaving or just zoning out, stay with me and don't leave because this, you, this is exactly what you need to hear today. It might be hard to hear, but it's good. And how do I know that? Because it's God's word and God is good. And so from our text this morning, you will see four moving parts so that you would anchor your hope to something that will never move, never shift, and never change. Four moving parts so that you would anchor your hope to something that will never move, shift, or change. And all these points come from the Hebrew words that we find in our text, a word yatza. We're going to learn some Hebrew today. Yatza, all right, meaning to go out. Four times it's said in our text. If you look at verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out. Yatza. And before we break that down, that first moving part, let me just remind us of some background real quick. I think Aaron covered this, but I'll just remind us. Where is Jacob? Just look at the text just prior to ours in Genesis 33, 18 through 20. He's come to a place called Shechem, all right? And he's bought a piece of land just outside the city and set up his tent. And that context is significant, Context is always significant. It's key, or it's king, or it's both, right? It's really important. We teach that here. Why is Jacob's landing spot, though, Shechem, why is that significant to consider? Because all the way back to Genesis 28, right, Jacob made a vow, a promise to God, a promise that Jacob would return back to the land where God had previously revealed himself to Jacob, right, which was Bethel, right? That's where he was supposed to go. That, that, that vow is in 28.20, Genesis 28.20, which says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me 
and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth, a full tenth to you. Church, has God kept Jacob safe? Has he, has he, has he fed him? Has he clothed him? He has providentially, faithfully, and graciously been with Jacob this whole way, right? Even take note of verse 18 of of chapter 33. Now Jacob came safely to Shechem. And, and, And so why is Jacob buying it and settling down and pitching his tent in Shechem, which is 20 miles away from Bethel? He he just stopped one day's journey short. There's a lot of people, including myself, I'm convinced, that, that, that think Jacob was attracted to the idea of living in Shechem. What's significant about Shechem? What do we know? Long before Israel even possessed the land of Canaan, the land, it was a great, the land of Shechem was a great trading center. Great, it was great for business. A place where all the main roads intersected. It was a place you could be successful, a, a prosperous place. And if you could just imagine... Think of Jacob and everything that he has, right? He would have thrived in a place near Shechem. He had all this livestock and wealth. And, 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 and similar, if that be the case, he's kind of like Lot in a way. You remember Lot? Lot uh, saw the, economical, the economic benefits of, of living in Sodom. But like Sodom, Shechem was a worldly place. So Jacob had half obeyed God by coming back to the promised land, but not fully because he wasn't in Bethel. And I believe it's because of this disobedience that the consequences and events that take place in our text in 34, that they transpire. And not to, just, not to get ahead of ourselves, but if you just look at chapter 35, verse 1, look at what it says. Read, read it for yourself. What, what does God say in 35.1? Go to Bethel. Essentially, God says, go go the whole way. Finish the journey. Finish the vow. I have kept you up until this point. Get going. You knucklehead, right? Pastor Andy paraphrased. He didn't say that, okay? And so Jacob, though, he pitches his tent and brought land. He bought land right outside of the prosperous worldly place called Shechem. And that's where our text begins. And so when we look at verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born of Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. The first moving part here, the first yatza, Dinah's yatza, her going out, is, is she goes out, Dinah goes out, which results in rape. Dinah, who we believe to be a teenage girl, goes out, and let me just stop there for a second because that's not okay, all right? I have two little girls and they'll never yatza without me, all right? Um, I'm already quilting turtlenecks for them and fashioning prison bars for their bedrooms, okay? Just kidding. Just kidding. But, but, but Dinah was pushing the boundaries, I believe, when she, she went out to see the women of the land. And here's some historical context that I'll just share with you. Girls of marriageable age at this time were not permitted to leave the tents of their people to go about visiting without a chaperone. In fact, the Hebrew term went out, Yatza, bears a, a sense of impropriety or a failure to obey her parents. Likely, she went out behind Leah's back and the worst thing happened. And what does the text say Dinah went out to do? She went out 
to see the women of the land or to observe the habits of the Canaanite people. It's phrased in a very negative way. The only other place where that phrase women of the land is used in the Bible is used in the context, interestingly enough, of Rebecca and her concern for Jacob and who he marries or who he doesn't marry. Genesis 27, 46, this is Rebecca. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, Jacob's dad, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of those Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, that's the phrase, what good will my life be to me? That's how Rebecca observed them and their habits. That's, that's what she thought of them. And verse 2 tells us the result of this going out, this yatza of Dinah. Three verbs that are used. She was seized, she was laid with, and she was humiliated. Some commentators disagree and argue whether or not she was raped, and I think those three verbs make it pretty evident that she was. And who was the predator? None other than the prince of the city of Shechem, whose name happened to be Shechem. And this probably happened, mind you, in broad daylight. There's some clues to our text to suggest this. And, and I tell you that because it kind of paints the picture for us of what this city was like. Another couple things I want you to take note of just to help us understand this narrative better. Dinah is Jacob's only daughter. His only daughter from his less loved wife, Leah. And if, if that sounds strange to you when I say that, you need some context of Genesis 29, right? And, and how that all happened. And, 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 and when you look at verse 1 of chapter 34... This is the only example in all of Scripture that introduces a woman, Dinah, with her mother instead of a father. You see that? You notice that? Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, only place in Scripture. Why do you think it does that? Because not only did Jacob love Dinah or Leah less, but he loved her kids less. And again, for more context there, you can turn to chapter 29. I think her parents are also stated here in this passage so that we would remember that Simeon and Levi were her full biological brothers. That's, I think, an important detail to take note of as they um, become main characters in this story um, later in the text. But let's get back to the issue. Shechem, the prince of Shechem, rapes Dinah, this, this poor teenage girl who probably wasn't considering the total cost of going out on her own. And, and what happens to Shechem after he rapes Dinah? Verse 3 tells us that he falls in love. Verse 3 says that his soul was drawn to her. He, he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. That, that last phrase, speaking tenderly to her, has the idea of Shechem trying to woo Dinah, trying to calm her and, and win her over. Shechem being controlled by his passions and his lusts, now wants this to be an ongoing reality. And so he spoke to his father, Hamor, and called for his father to get him the girl. That's an interesting way that that's phrased. Instead of using her actual name, it's believed to hear that, that he does this because he's treating Dinah like a mere object instead of a, a person. And, and I can't help but restate this. I think this is all avoidable if, if Jacob just goes to Bethel. And, and it's dangerous to do this, but I'm going to take a detour because there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of text left and little time, but, but I, I can't help but address this before moving to our next part. 
There's a, a great danger, church, in being so close to the world, to, to parking ourselves so close to the world like Jacob does in our text. And I know we live in the world. I get it. But how do we keep ourselves from being of the world? Because it's, it's pretty easy to find yourself at a secular job working with secular people or students to be at school with kids in a godless environment. At first, you're just kind of around this stuff. But over time, what could happen? Start inching closer and closer and eventually becoming a part of it. We have to be on guard. We can easily forget in our flesh what kind of world that we live in. We live in a Genesis 34 type of a world. We live in a, in a post-Genesis 3 world, a fallen world. I heard a pastor say once, there's a reason. We have locks on our doors and policemen, right? It's because of the world that we live in. And let me just speak to parents for a moment. As a pastor who oversees youth and family, parents, be aware. Be aware, be on guard, because it's even in church that we as parents are allowing our kids free reign to yatza, to go out without any limits, as if we live in, in a perfect world now. And I'm fully aware that you can't imprison your kids in your bedroom and fashion the bars, right? I, I, the common rebuttal here is, well, they have to grow up sometime, and they do. But, but you have to train your kids, in the way that they're to go. Fathers, you need to shepherd your kids. Fathers that, that, that buy their, their young boys' and girls' phones and don't shepherd their kids, that's absolutely reckless. I cannot tell you how much a problem these things are, how many students I, I counsel because of this, these things. And there are parents that are completely oblivious to the danger that, that are all around their kids. You may not live in Shechem per se, but if you've given your kids, just for one example, a phone, without limits, you've parked them next to a city that has an opportunity for wickedness that far exceeds that of Shechem. And I say that with a lot of care, prayer, and, and, and love. And, and also, let me just... Be clear, parenting your kids is not limited to, to only taking your kids to things and having them be a part of stuff like club sports, band, 4-H. Parenting your kids isn't only limited to paying for things like food and clothes and gas or, or their future house or their college, uh, you know, their college loans and everything. And none of those things are wrong necessarily, but, but what are you doing to train them up in the Lord? How often do you pray with your kids or pray for them? We drive them everywhere. We, we pay for things. But how are you investing in your kids spiritually? Being a parent is, is so hard. It's humbling. I, 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 I'm learning this. But if you have children, this is what God has called you to do, to shepherd their hearts. Let's get back to our text. Jacob. He plants himself in Shechem instead of Bethel, and he finds out that this happens, and, 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 and that, that, that Dinah is raped. And, and what is his response in verse 5? He's silent. He hears that Dinah is defiled, a word used so many times in our text, and, and that she was violated, humiliated, dishonored, made unclean, and yet Jacob is shockingly quiet for much of this chapter. 
Three possible reasons for his silence, I think. Some people believe that Jacob's silent because it was his duty to keep watch over Dinah since her brothers were out in the fields. And because this happened, he remained quiet because he felt guilty. Number two, others say that he was silent because of his grief of what took place. Or third, could it be because he, he was silent because he didn't know how his sons would respond? So he was silent because he was scared of how they would react. It's hard to judge motive here in the text. It's not given to us. But Jacob, note this, is quiet throughout this passage. Let's turn to our next yatza. The, the next moving part of this narrative is found in verse 6. Uh, then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out. Yatza. Hamor goes out to resolve his son's passions. Take notice, that's exactly what he does here. Hamor doesn't come to Jacob to say, I'm sorry. He, he, there's no mention of the foul, no mentioning of his sons going out of bounds here, no asking for forgiveness on behalf of his son. doesn't say anything negative concerning his son. Instead, instead of resolving the, the conflict with Jacob, he seeks to resolve his son's unresolved passion for getting married. Fathers, how would you respond to Hamor here? I know how I'd respond. What does Jacob say? We don't know. There's nothing. He has no recorded response. He has no recorded emotion even. Instead, Jacob's sons come back from the field and they hear what happened. And look at their response in verse 7. Grieved and very angry. I think in the ESV it says indignant and very angry. Why? The text says because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. And in verses 8 through 10, Hamor tells them that his son, who has just seized, defiled, and humiliated Dinah, has fallen in love with her and would like to marry her. And then in verses 9 through 10, opens up, he, he opens up their minds to the potential financial benefits of their marriage. It's like Hamor saying, you know, let's just be one big happy family. We could all get along. You can choose from our women. We'll choose from yours. And in verse 10, Hamor sweetens the deal, saying our land could be yours, and, and, and vice versa. The word for get property in it, in verse 10, is the word acquire. It's a word that's typically used in regards to property. Hamor, what he's saying, guys, is in, he's insinuating here of Jacob and his family being fully assimilated into Hamor's family. There's a golden nugget quote here from Kent Hughes that says, with Hamor's, regarding Hamor's word, words, it pulsed with economic appeal. Property in Canaan, grazing rights, the freedom to travel and dwell anywhere. In sum, Hamor promised what God had promised Israel. Very enticing, a shortcut to the promised land. Isn't that what happens? Again, if we take a step back, when we park ourselves close to the world, the world will never stop screaming at us, come over here, be like this, be one with me. And how, how horrible all of this is. You know, Dinah's tragedy turns into this, this business proposition here. Shechem jumps in here in verse 11 and 12 and, and says, here's a blank check pretty much. What will it take to get, you know, get all this thing done? And he's willing to pay more than just what the typical bride payment and gift was, which is unheard of. But Jacob's sons, no, Jacob's sons, not Jacob, but Jacob's sons, 
give a response to Shechem and his father Hamor. And the text tells us how they respond with what? With deceit. Well, that's a word we've never heard before. No. Yeah, that's, that's all. That's right. It's almost like Jacob's sons here are acting like Jacob in his old life. Jacob's name has been changed, right? God changed his name to Israel. But do you know what Jacob's name means in the Hebrew? How it could be rendered? It could be rendered as one who deceives. And we know that to be true of his life and his old life. And now we see sons, his sons imitating the ways of his father. This whole thing reminds me of a proverb 26, 24, which says, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. And the, and the sons deceive Shechem and Hamor by calling them all to be circumcised in verses 14 to 15. Quick refresher on, on circumcision. Um, circumcision was a sign of the covenant made to, or the promise made to Abraham, right? The Abrahamic covenant uh, made to Abraham and his descendants. The sign of the covenant was cutting off the male's foreskin. This was established in Genesis 17 with Abraham. And it was this covenant that pictured the need to cut away sin and be cleansed. You ever thought or wondered, why did God choose that sign? Why did he do that? I, I have thought that once before, and instead of me trying to answer it, I'll, uh, MacArthur says it was, <laughs> it was the male organ which most clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. Thus, circumcision symbolized the need for a profoundly deep cleansing to reverse the effects of depravity. And yet, how did the sons of Jacob use this covenant? Jacob's sons used this covenant to accomplish their own wicked and nefarious purposes. It's a bit ironic, actually, this special covenant made to Abraham. Uh, Abraham uh, was promising abundant life to Abraham's descendants, and even promised to be a future blessing to all the nations, that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And yet Jacob's sons used this holy covenant to deceive and destroy the men of Shechem. Jacob's sons lie and say that if they were to complete the circumcision, we will agree to your proposal, which of course is a lie. And in verse 17, it's interesting. It says, but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. You... Like, Dinah's not back yet. She's still at Shechem's house. Hamor and Shechem, you know, they yatsed to come resolve, but Dinah was still missing. She's still not home while this is all going down. Mind-blowing. And, and so the negotiations, they seem to go well with Shechem and Hamor. Uh, Jacob's still silent. And, and Shechem, in verse 19, he wastes no time. In fact, his actions, uh, I think, are associated with his age, if you see that in the text. The, the, the Bible says that he's a, he acts like a young man here, refers to him as, as a young man. Most likely, Shechem, so excited, he circumcises himself right there on the spot, you know, filled with passion. And so now Hamor and Shechem go to the gate of the city where business was conducted, and they have to convince now, this is a, a, a hard task, They're, it's their job now to convince the whole men of the town to get circumcised. Good luck, right? And in verse 21, they start off by stating that Jacob's family are peaceful and friendly with us. That's a good place to start. Um, and then he tells them that they can experience the blessing of being one with the people and intermarrying. 
But there's one condition that they have to be circumcised. And when they say that, if I'm a Hivite or a Shechemite, you know, I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't think so. I'm not interested. Right? But then in verse 23, Hamor, with his political savvy, talks about a very appealing part of this deal. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their, their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. It's a pretty sweet deal. Almost like saying, hey, I know circumcision, guys. It's going to be rough. It's going to hurt, you know? But we'll, make, we'll, we'll, we'll all make out, you know? Modern terms, would you get circumcised for a million dollars? You know? It'll only hurt for three days. We can do this. Hamor, I don't have the, the time, but Hamor is respectable uh, in Shechem. Jacob's family were said to be peaceable, and the reward was said to be great. And so, notice how they respond. And, and, and two, I forgot to say, did, did, in, in this, in this uh, talking to the, the town, did they mention anything about rape or, or the marriage between Shechem and Dinah? That, that could have raised uh, red flags. They didn't say anything. But verse 23 does show us that they have their own personal interests in mind. And, and verse 24 gives us that third yatza of the text. The men of Shechem responded and were circumcised. And so, so far in Genesis 34, we've seen Dinah's going out uh, her, her yatza, which ended in rape. We've seen Hamor's desire to resolve his son's unresolved passions to get married. And we've seen the response of the people of city to get circumcised in order to have what Jacob has. And the last yatza, the last moving part, will be found in the final section of this chapter. Let's look at verse 25 together. It starts with the, the third day. What's significant about the third day in circumcision? Well, with everything that I've read, it's the most painful day. It's the most painful day. And Simeon and Levi, Dinah's biological brothers, they knew this. This was calculated. It was planned. They took their swords and, and they went house to house killing every male that lives. And, and you know, I, I just, this really gets me sometimes. We type, we can think of the Bible kind of like veggie tales, like it's all make pretend or it's like some fairy tale. Okay, this is real people, real times, a real event, real places right? And just imagine, right? They're going house to house, pushing mothers, wives, pushing children aside, and slaying every man that lives to accomplish this genocide. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to make it very and abundantly clear. I think you would assume that I would say this, and I, rape is a horrible thing. It is one of the most debased things in this world. Simeon and Levi, they could have felt justified in their actions. In fact, I believe they do. The Mosaic law, which wasn't in effect yet, called for the man who committed rape to be what? Put to death. But never a whole city full of people. In bitterness and, and rage, they reacted in a way that they thought would be just. But who does justice belong to, church? The Lord. Who, by the way, in all of chapter 34, is God mentioned? Not once. Again, making this text even darker. Bitterness is clearly presented here because Shechem had defiled their sister. It's mentioned there. And the bitterness, I think, is expressed through some, some repetitious Hebrew words that I'll, I'll, I'll just have you take note of. Look at verse 25 with me. 
Now it happened on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the unsuspecting city and killed every male. And they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. That's the Yatza, went away. Jacob's son came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and plundered all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Took three times. It's the same exact word in the Hebrew that was used in verse 2. Look at verse 2 in the beginning of this chapter. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her. In my Bible, it says took and he took her. And it's exactly the same Hebrew word being used. I don't think it's a stretch to say that God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took the same Hebrew word here and used it three times to describe Simeon's and Levi's yatza, the fourth yatza. They took revenge in a form of genocide. Bitterness can cause our depraved hearts to do nasty, horrible things. And that is why there are so many biblical warnings to warn us against bitterness, which I don't have the time to, to look at with you. But Simeon and, and Levi defiled the whole city because their sister was defiled. They got Di Dinah back along with not only some of Shechem's things, but, but everything, right? Verses 28 and 29 mention. It's like they took everything that they had, showing us not only was bitterness rooted and grounded in their hearts, but what else? Greed as well. And then Jacob speaks really for the first time in this text, and he says in verse 30, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious or smell. I think you have stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites and my men being few in number, and they will gather together against me and strike me, and I will be destroyed, and I and my household, making me stink. A phrase meaning that because their actions have, uh, because of their actions, they have lost total respect for Jacob. Think uh, for a moment what Jacob doesn't say here in this passage. He doesn't say or ask about Dinah and her well-being. He doesn't necessarily condemn their killing here in the text. He doesn't talk about their deception and misuse of the Abrahamic covenant. The only thing that Jacob cares about in this passage, in this text, in this verse, is his survival and his reputation. Verse 30, it condemns Jacob on what he doesn't say, but it also condemns him on what he does say. Going back, Jacob made a, he, he made a vow. And God kept him safe the whole way and provided and cared for him despite having faced several hurdles in his life. And instead of Jacob fulfilling this vow and traveling just one more day to Bethel, where God had revealed himself to him, he parks himself right next to Shechem, where we see all these moving parts. Dinah's rape, the resolve of Hamor and Shechem, the response of the Shechemites, and the horrifying revenge of his sons. And now Jacob questions his safety. And he fears for his life. All because of where he has compromised and because of the reckless actions of his sons. 
who at the end of our passage, uh, passage says, should he treat our sister like a prostitute, challenging their, their father's care for Dinah? I, I don't have the time, but you know, later on in, in the book of Genesis, Jacob will actually curse Simeon and Levi for these actions. And you know, there's, some, there's some interesting things. that you, There's so much in this passage, it's hard to cover it all. I mean, Levi, sword-carrying Levi, he's going to end up being the father of, of the Levites, the priests of Israel. Jacob's only hope after a chapter of his life like this one, and our only hope living in a world like this, resides in a new and better Jacob. Christ the Savior who bore the wrath of God because of your sins, because of my sins. Without Christ, you cannot have a relationship with God. And how hopeless that would be living in a Genesis 34 type world without having experienced the love of Christ. This text is a reflection, church, of the dark, fallen world that we live in today. But, but this is the type of world, don't forget, that Christ came to die for. This is the type of world that God would love so much that he would, what? Send his son. We, we have all these, these horrifying movements and parts in this passage, but are God's promises moving? Are they shifting? Are they changing? No. God still will protect Jacob despite his foolishness and the foolishness of his sons. Just look I don't want to step on Paul's text for next week, but Genesis 35, verse 5. Just check that out. That says that God causes a terror to fall on the people in order to again protect Jacob in the future. And what do we know? I want to hammer this home too. What do we know concerning God's affection towards Jacob? Has that changed? No. No. Romans 9, 13, New Testament. Jacob, I loved. Even after a horrible chapter like Genesis 34, we see all these moving uh, uh, parts of Genesis 34, but God's love for Jacob remains the same. Despite bad parenting choices, rape, and even genocide, God's promises and plans are still sure. And God is absolutely in control, and he's working all things together for his glory. And we've been seeing that throughout Genesis, haven't we? Church, do not be weighed down by the depressing, sinful, moving parts of this life. But anchor yourself to the cornerstone of your faith where we can have hope forevermore. There's nothing sweeter than to trust in Jesus in this sin-cursed, fallen world that we live in. Let's, let's pray. Father, this is a, a hard text to study and, and to read. It can even be depressing and challenging for us to read and study, but, but help, it, help it be a reminder to us this morning that, that a life apart from you it is a life that is that is hopeless and, and depressing, a life that's dark. Lord, thank you for the love that you have for us and being for us the light of the world. This text shows us how much we need you.
and how much we need to trust in you. Help us to do that this day. In your name I pray. Amen.